Listener Production. One of the most important factors of gardening is promoting growth and sustainability, and good soil is key to this. Compost is perfect for supporting great soil structure. I like using it anywhere I'm growing plants or anywhere there's soil. Hi, I'm Charlie Albone, and in partnership with Still on this episode of That's How We Grow, I'll be catching up with Kate Flood, or as she's known online as Compostable Kate. She's the queen of compost and she's on a mission to help others set up their household waste management. If you can understand the right inputs to put into your composting system, it's going to work. I'm really excited to speak with someone who's as passionate about compost as I am. Welcome to Kate Flood. So the queen of compost. Okay, I've got a confession to make. When you did a story recently on Better Homes and Gardens, you did it with Joe Griggs, and I was super jealous that I didn't get to come and have a chat with you. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's lovely to be here because it's it's exciting that you are as enthusiastic about learning about compost as I am about teaching about it. So it's really cool. I love it. I love it. How, how did you get so passionate about compost? It's something that my my lovely mother has always done. I've called her the, the original compost queen. Okay. And so, yeah, I've always grown up in a household that has had some form of composting. And even when I was a, a young adult, when I first moved out of home when I was 20, I forced all of my housemates to compost. So it's just been something that's been really normal. And then having my own family, I've got three small children. I wanted to have that as a part of what we always did. And I think the more people that I talk to, I realise that actually – home composting isn't the norm but I wanted to show the fact that it's totally accessible to everyone regardless of where you live and it's something that's really addictive I think that's that's probably (laughs) something that I need to make clear at the beginning once you get started you don't really want to stop and you see the world with compost colored glasses and you're like oh yes I can add that to my compost bin and you know you go out with friends and you take their leftovers home and you start uh yeah you you really see waste in a totally different way which I think is really important I haven't gone so far as to take other people's leftovers home but but I have gone (laughs) shopping I've been in the shops going I'm going to buy that so I can compost compost it knowing that we're going to finish all that but it'll be great in the compost uh, so why is it so important to compost so we, we've known for a awfully long time that when food waste and other organic matter and organic matter is anything that was living so it could be your food scraps or it could be your grass clippings um, or hedge prunings so any of those items when they hit landfill they turn into climate poison so what happens is instead of breaking down in your compost bin or just on the earth, when we pile them up on top of one another, bag them up in plastic, they break down in a really different way. They break down anaerobically, which means without oxygen. Mm -hmm. And the issue with that is instead of these nutrients breaking down and being returned to the earth, they actually break down very slowly and they release methane and they also release a really toxic chemical sludge. And, you know, it's one of these things that we know that the science is totally clear with this, that it's a really dangerous thing to be putting our food waste into landfill. There's a crazy stat there, isn't there, that I that I learned from your Instagram, actually, that globally food waste makes up uh, would be the third worst... Climate emitter. Yes, that's right. So if, you, if you're looking at all of America and all of China, they're just ahead of food waste, but then food waste is just below that. So it's it's absolutely staggering. And in terms of the, the impact on the planet, it's really significant. For me, the reason why I am such a passionate advocate about composting is because it's something that we can do today and it's something that we can all do 
and it doesn't have to cost a lot of money and it truly feels so good knowing that not only are we helping mitigate climate change by composting our food scraps, we're also, you know, you can take it from a selfish perspective, you're going to have a really kick-ass garden if you're returning those nutrients to your soil. So how do people get started? Because there's so many ways to do it. You could have a compost heap, you could have compost bays, you can have one of those Dalek-looking things. There's hot compost, there's cold compost, there's tumblers, there's... You know, there's there's apartment composting. Like, where do people start? Well, I think that the best bit of advice is to know that Mother Nature makes compost every single day without any fancy kit. So when we think about a forest floor, we've got leaves falling down. We might have some berries dropping down off a tree. We might have some manure from a flying bird or maybe a dead carcass of an animal or an old branch. And all of that's going to hit the soil and break down. So irrespective of what particular compost kit you use with understanding a little bit of the science behind it. And thankfully the science doesn't have to be that complicated. I talk about it as a recipe. If you can understand the right inputs to put into your composting system, it's going to work. So what I like to recommend is think about the amount of um, food waste that you generate as a household. So I have got my children, especially one of them, uh, Woody, my middle son, is pretty fussy with food. And so I know he's going to be my food waste generator of of this week because it's rejecting so much of the stuff I give him. So you think about the amount of waste that you're generating and then you think about the size of your patch. So if you have a big backyard, then maybe those three bay um, open composting systems where you can make amazing hot compost could be a great solution for you because you're wanting to produce a lot of compost to feed your garden. If you live somewhere smaller, then there's lots of different small-scale options that you can use, things like Bokashi or worm farms. And it's really great to know that compost microbes and worms are a really accommodating lot. They don't care if they're made in big systems or small systems, as long as you're feeding them the, the right ingredients. Great. So where do, where do people start? If someone's never made compost before, what advice do you give them? So what I like to, to emphasise is the fact that your compost pile is not this static, inert pile of scraps. It's alive. And just like us, it needs a couple of uh, things to balance the in terms of their, the compost microbes diet for it to really succeed. So the recipe that I like to teach only has four ingredients. So you need to include nitrogen-rich scraps. So they are things like your food waste, grass clippings, coffee grounds, manure, and they need to be balanced with organic matter that is high in carbon. So that's generally like the dead, dry, brown stuff. So some of my favourite natural sources are aged wood chips and shredded brown leaves, but you can also use manufactured paper products with a little bit of a caveat there's, there's some safety checks that you need to do with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can use things like brown cardboard or, or um, office paper, shred it up as well. They're really high in carbon. So you need to have the balance in compost language. We call that the greens and the browns. But the, the microbes in your compost also need to have access to water. So we like to keep everything lightly moist because a lot of the microbial decomposition that's happening in a compost bin happens on the surface of these scraps where they're nice and moist. So in the height of summer, you may need to add water into your compost bin. But in the middle of winter, if it gets too wet, then things can become soggy and a little bit smelly and that shows that the wrong bacteria is starting to breed. And if that happens, it's a sign you need to turn your compost. So the final ingredient is oxygen. So unlike what happens in landfill where there's no air, 
in a compost pile, we need to keep it really aerated because we want to have lots of oxygen in the mix because the bacteria, because we know our compost pile is alive, the bacteria in there need oxygen just like we do. So you can turn your compost bin or you can add those chunky forms of carbon like wood chips, which which create little air pockets in the mix. You can also add in static lungs. That's something that I talk about in my book because sometimes turning compost can be a bit of a pain. So, What is a static lung? (laughs) Um, (laughs) There's a number of ways of making them. I don't know if you've heard of the Johnson Sioux bioreactor, which is these large-scale slow composting systems that make really carbon-rich, fungi-rich compost. And what they do with them is they add pipes that with lots of holes that draw oxygen into the mix. So that's something that I really recommend doing if you're um, too busy to turn compost or you're not able because it can be quite physical if you've got a big pile. You can get a PVC pipe, drill lots of holes all over it and wedge that into the organic matter and that will help oxygen flow through into the core of the compost. You can also make that even more simply just with a pile of sticks that you tie up and you put that in the centre and that will help air draw through. So those four ingredients, if you can nail that, the nitrogen, carbon, oxygen and water, then you are going to be making great compost. So what are things that you can't put into a compost bin then? Depends on how you're making it. So if you're hot composting, hot compost, I'll explain it briefly, is made in a large scale pile. So you gather You go green and brown hunting and you get all of your organic matter in one go and you make like a compost lasagna. You make layers of those green and brown ingredients. But what happens with that is if you build it all at once and you keep everything moist, then there's going to be this special form of bacteria that's going to take over. They're called thermophilic bacteria. And they, as they start breaking down your waste, actually generate temperatures of between 40 to 60 degrees Celsius And we want our hot compost to be about 60 degrees because that's going to cook off any pathogens. So people sometimes think you can't add diseased plant material into compost, but you can in a hot compost system because once the temperature gets to that level, those diseases are going to be rendered completely neutral and safe. Manure is a really great nitrogen-rich input into your compost, but it can contain pathogens. So hot composting it is a really useful thing. I am a bit of a no rules composter, Charlie, and I I love composting. Freestyle. (laughs) That's right. Well, I just think there's, you know, if we have all of these things that you say, oh, no, you can't add that to the compost, then we're missing out on returning those nutrients to, to our soil. I add things like citrus and onions and meat and dairy, all of these compost no nos because I know that everything that is alive will break down right. and it will break down safely if you know the right method for it. So don't add a whole heap of citrus into a worm farm because your worms are going to really suffer. There's a chemical in the skin called limonin, which is toxic to worms. But if I add my citrus into one of my hot or cold compost bins, it's going to break down through microbial decomposition. Can you add sort of dog poo to a compost pile or is that a massive no-no? Yeah, you can, but you have to be careful with it. There can be parasites in, especially cat poo, can be quite dangerous to, mm-hmm. to pregnant women. There's a parasite called taxoplasmosis, which is is really dangerous to unborn children. Yeah. Handling it, you need to be very careful. But what you can do, and it's a really great solution for people that have cats or dogs, it's quite different to the compost systems that we've talked about, the Kashi compost. So mm-hmm. this um, originated in Japan 
And it's a different form of composting because it doesn't involve oxygen. So you're actually fermenting your food or your poo nice. without, <laughs> without the presence of oxygen. You're adding in a, a compost starter, which is inoculated wheat bran that has bacteria that produces lactic acid, kind of like what happens in sauerkraut, and specially selected yeast that is inoculated into this wheat. And you so with dog poo or cat poo, there's this thing called an Enzo Pet composter, which is a Bakashi style of in-ground composting. You wedge it into the ground, you add your dog poo, you sprinkle that, that starter onto it, and then you just leave it. Um, and it will break down and all of those nutrients will be returned to the soil and you don't need to handle it all the time because it's not in a freestanding compost bin. You have to make sure you're not putting it anywhere near your edible garden. So I've seen them use really successfully tucked in behind, you know, a, a hedge or um, and there's a lid on it. So it's not an open system. And if you use enough of that, that wheat bran, it won't smell. If you're adding things like fish and meat and bread and stuff like that, how do you keep vermin out. A couple of things that I do, I run all of those kind of potentially stinkier scraps through my Bakashi bin. So I ferment them first. And then once I've got about four or five of my Bakashi bins full and fermented, you need to fill them up and leave them for at least two weeks for that anaerobic bacteria to really break it down. Then I add that into my hot compost system. And once your hot compost is at 60 degrees Celsius, no vermin are going to be anywhere near it. Right. But that is a little bit more involved for the home composter. But if you're at home and thinking, no, this all seems ridiculous, like I can't have this system that's fermenting stuff and then system that's cooking, you know, that seems crazy. What you can do is one of those Dalek-style bins, Mm -hmm. um, retrofit a piece of rodent and snake-proof mesh onto the bottom of it, and that's something you can get from hardware stores and landscaping stores. You wrap the bottom of that and then you can add your meat and your fish into your regular compost bin, bearing in mind they're full of nitrogen. They are attractive to not only vermin but also to things like flies. Mm -hmm. So when you're putting it into your compost, always make sure you're burying it amongst the, the other organic matter and add a really generous layer of carbon on top so flies and other insects aren't going to proliferate on the surface of them. So we have chatted quite a lot about bacteria and that kind of stuff. Um, Is this all safe around kids and pets and and all that stuff? It's a great question. So when I am turning my compost, I like to do it with wearing an N95 mask, especially when I was pregnant. I always made sure I did that because Mm. um, the bacteria and fungi can become airborne. If you're concerned about pets getting into it, then those Dalek bins with the rodent-proof mesh on the bottom are a really useful way to go. And I do encourage my kids to get into my worm farms because, you know, kids are naturally curious. But making sure they're not handling the, the food waste when it's actively decomposing, when the compost has cured or when the worm farm um, has broken things down and you've got lots of castings in there, um, that's when the organic matter is a lot safer for, for kids to be involved in the process. So how, how do those bins work because you can't really turn them, can you? Well, you can turn them. And I want to introduce you to one of my favourite tools. If you're into drinking a lovely bottle of wine with, a, you know, a old school proper cork, you might have a little mini corkscrew at home. Well, you can get really large corkscrew compost aerators, which do just look like giant corkscrews. Okay. Um, and you can use that in those Dalek-style bins to twist through the organic matter and yeah. then instead of popping out the cork, you're 
pulling up the compost and you're kind of creating holes in the mix. But I also really recommend one of my favourite forms of carbon, which I think uh, is often overlooked, is wood chips. Where people get composting wrong is they just add food waste into a compost bin and it's going to stink, it's not going to break down correctly. And by adding something like wood chips, that actually opens up the pore space of the compost because they're yep. chunky, they don't break down that quickly. And you can generate great compost without turning it that regularly by adding right. wood chips into the mix. How long do you have to age the wood chips for? You know how pe- people always say don't add wood chips onto a vegetable garden? And the reason is they are big lumps of carbon and for them to break down, the bacteria that is on wood chips needs to suck up nitrogen from the surrounding soil to balance the carbon within the the wood chip. So they do what's called nitrogen stealing. So they steal nitrogen from around the environment that they're placed in to allow them to break down. Once they're fully broken down, that nitrogen is released back into the soil. But if you age them, if you keep them in a separate pile and keep them moist, you'll find that it it takes about at least least a year, to be honest. Some... um, more some timber that has more volatile oils like eucalyptus you need to age longer closer to 18 months but if you do it they are the most beautiful things to work with you can add aged wood chips into um, your veggie garden you can add them into your compost you can actually just make compost from the wood chips themselves and when it breaks down it can be used in potting soils. It can be used as a really moisture retentive mulch. There's so many uses for it. Is that similar to leaf mold then? Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's right. Leaf leaf mold is is even more accessible to the home composter because um, it breaks down more quickly. So you can imagine the mm. surface area of leaves is much greater than a chunky piece of wood. So leaf mold is another amazing form of of composting that that I really encourage people to do. So you just get dry deciduous leaves and you just keep them moist and it generally takes for the leaf mold where I live in Australia um, on the the south coast of New South Wales it takes me about a year if you live in a hotter drier part of Australia it might may take you a little bit longer and you will need to be monitoring the moisture on your leaves because you have to keep them wet because that's going to allow all of this amazing fungi to break down the leaves Mm. and then you can use that as compost as mulch in your potting soils you can make leaf mold tea. It, it becomes a really amazing regenerative soil amendment that you can spread a lot further. A lot of this stuff, Charlie, is kind of like I feel like I'm like a child, like a, playing witches <laughs> in the backyard, especially when you go down the route of making weed tea, which is an incredibly potent but incredibly stinky um, amendment to make for your soil, but it's, it's awesome. So leaf mold tea, you need to have um, a handful of, the well broken down leaves and you use a potato which is full of natural starches it's a korean natural farming technique and basically you're brewing up the mix and you're allowing all of that fungi to proliferate in the water you need to do it in dechlorinated water you you <laughs> you rig up like a little clothesline so it's a great idea if you've got an old uh, sock made out of natural fibers and you you hang your your potato which you've boiled in the sock, off a little clothesline, in a bucket with dechlorinated water, along with a handful of your well-broken-down leaf mould, and that's going to allow the proliferation of all of those fungi and life forms 
like so you're feeding it with the with the potato and you're feeding it with the leaves and you're allowing it to brew up in the water and it takes I've got all the details in my book it takes a couple of days pretty quick like whereas uh, weed tea can take a long time to break down but leaf mold tea I think it's in about three days you can use it and you can use it straight Uh or you can actually dilute it further and then you're going to be sprinkling all of this amazing fungi rich fluid into your soil and the reason why fungi is so important in overworked urban gardens a lot of our soil is quite low in fungi right and fungi have a really interesting relationship with plants so plants take up nutrients via their roots and they need to have fungi's help to do that leaf mold is quite low in nutrient isn't it because it's just it's just carbon so really is the is the major benefit of it the fungi yes but also some of the properties about it so once leaves or wood have fully decomposed, they are high in fungi, but they're also really moisture retentive. So they kind of act like a sponge. And if you've got sandy soil or if you live in an area where, you know, we all are increasingly living in areas that experience really hot and dry weather extremes, if you can mulch with leaf mould or with aged wood chips that have been fully broken down, you're going to allow any water that falls from the sky or water that you're hosing in your garden to be captured in your soil. So it stops runoff from happening. It's stopping evaporation from happening, but also it's it's sucking in all of this, this water that is then slowly released back into your soil. Yeah, that's amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's great. It's really, it's beautiful stuff. You said it's good to have wood chip in your compost, but I've always been taught you need to chop everything up as small as possible so it happens as as quickly as possible. Yes, well, sometimes speed isn't everything, Charlie. Okay, patience is key. (laughs) So with things that can be rodent attracting or pest attracting, so your food waste, it is a good idea chopping that up smaller. That increases the surface area and compost bacteria are really interesting. So the way that they break down food is the bacteria that's present on all of us. You know, we're petri dishes swimming with bacteria and that's the same with our food scraps and the same with with all the organic matter that we're adding into our compost. If we can increase the surface area by chopping it up, that allows the bacteria to produce enzymes that break down the, the food waste. So... We do want things like that to break down more quickly. But if you're wanting to have a bit more of a hands-off compost making experience, leaving some of your carbon sources chunky opens up little spaces where oxygen can sit in the mix. But if you're using wood that hasn't been aged properly or long enough, you obviously don't want those big chunky bits going into your garden. So once your compost has broken down and you've cured it, You can then use a compost sieve Mm -hmm. and those chunkier bits of carbon can then be returned into your next batch. And that's a really useful thing to do because they're all coated in the right bacteria. So it's kind of like a sourdough starter. So how would you do that if it's your first compost heap ever? Bacteria is on everything, as I had mentioned. And by adding in the right balance of so 50% carbon, 50% nitrogen, you're going to encourage the right bacteria into it. But what you can also do, and this is really useful if you're working with something like compost tumbler mm, yes. that's disconnected from the soil, is to add in a handful of healthy garden soil. You can get commercial compost starters as well, but I just think 
using a handful of soil. It's easier, right? It's Yeah, totally. The more that home gardeners can understand the importance of healthy soil, the easier gardening becomes. If you're always feeling like you're battling pests and things don't germinate and, you know, you're getting crappy harvests, so often it's because, it's not because you're a bad gardener, it's because there's something not quite right in your soil. So if you can be feeding your soil, looking after your soil first and foremost, then everything almost takes care of itself after that. It's really important in a new garden as well, because often uh, commercial grade potting mixes and soil mixes have to be sterilized. Yes. And so they, they've got nothing in them. I mean, yes. so, so you need to add your own compost to that to, to really bring it to life. There are literally billions of living things in a spoonful of healthy soil. And we need those life forms in our soil to have healthy plants. And if you're always getting these commercial inputs, and I think a big problem with um, this quick fix gardening mm. that we have of, you know, going down to the shops and bringing in commercial fertilisers, a lot of them are made with petrochemicals. So, yes, they might have nitrogen, potassium and phosphorus in it, but there's also a whole swarm of things that are doing real damage to our soil. So it's like a Band-Aid solution. You know, you're putting these commercial fertilisers in the soil, which ultimately are damaging, if not killing, some of the life in the soil. So then you become on this cycle of dependency where where each season you need more of it and you need more of it. But if you can cut out the middleman and shop your garden for resources and shop your kitchen for resources and compost that and return it to your soil, then you are saving money Mm. and you're also returning all of this life into your soil that's not not damaging your your ecosystem, you're improving it. So how do you use your compost in the garden? I I like using it anywhere I'm growing plants or anywhere there's soil. But what I like to do in, in the past, we would think about turning up the compost through the soil. So, you know, really getting your hands dirty and getting your garden fork out and mixing it through. But now the more that we know about soil, actually treating it softly and gently and not turning it is really significant for increasing the life in the soil. So feeding it as like a surface mulch. So putting it on the surface of your soil and allowing all of the life in the soil to come and actually consume that compost and to bring those nutrients deeper to where the plants need them happens naturally. So taking more of that no-dig approach is a really useful thing. If you want to naturally fertilise your lawn as well, compost is a really good thing for that. So turning it into a liquid form, so a couple of handfuls of compost in a sprayer or in a watering can and just watering that into your garden. It can be anywhere, not just your lawn, but that's another nice way of doing it as well. Amazing. And we've spoken about compost, but tell me a bit about worm farms because that's another way to get nutrients and goodness into your soil, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Worm farming is really awesome for apartment dwellers because when managed correctly, you can keep your worms as friendly little pets inside and when you get the balance of ingredients right and you kind of understand some characteristics about worms, uh-huh. it really doesn't smell. And what you end up producing is worm castings, which is a fancy name for worm poo, which actually has even more nitrogen than compost. And it's beautiful for things like if you're wanting to garden indoors, sprinkling your worm castings on your indoor plants is going to be incredible for them. Yeah, worms are just a really, really great thing to have. Even if you have a compost pile, fitting in a worm farm is a really, really great thing to do. Even from the worm we that it makes, I mean, you can use that as a liquid fertiliser and just just to constantly be spreading that over the soil is a fantastic thing to do as an addition to compost. Yeah, totally. You have to be a little bit careful about worm wee because it's kind of a, a bit of a misnomer because worms don't wee, they, they just poo. Mm. And so what is produced in a worm farm 
is that so that that worm tea or worm wee is the the food waste breaking down and draining through the castings. So if your worm tea wee smells, it can be a sign that there's the wrong bacteria in there because it hasn't been processed in the gut of the worm. But if it smells like it's got a free, clean, fresh smell to it and you're using it regularly so it's not just pooling and sitting down in the bottom of a worm farm, then it then it's a useful thing to use. And you have to dilute it, don't you? Uh, yes, you should always dilute your worm wee to the colour of weak tea. Is there anything you can't put into a worm farm? You mentioned citrus was bad. So worms are omnivores, but... One of the biggest worm killers is overfeeding them. Right. So small amounts of meat is totally fine. All of your kitchen scraps, they, they don't particularly like odorous scraps. So onion and garlic worms will consume, but um, not large amounts of them. They don't like acidic scraps as well. So tomatoes, pineapple, citrus, that's problematic for worms to consume because they like operating in a neutral pH condition. But worms actually will eat lots of things that you may not necessarily think because they eat them in partnership with with compost bacteria. Right. So worms don't have teeth and they won't sort of hunk into a um, piece of steak or, you know, a corn cob or whatever scrap you've added in Mm -hmm. until compost microbes have broken down the surface and it becomes like a nutrient-rich slurry on the outside of the scrap. And then worms come in and suck all of that up. To optimise things for worms, chopping your scraps is really useful. But one thing that you need to remember with your worms, because they are working with the compost bacteria, is you need to add carbon into a worm farm as well. So when you're setting up a worm farm, people often talk about adding carbon-rich bedding. So that might be coconut core, it might be shredded paper. But you need to be adding that regularly, not just at the beginning. And as long as you're doing that and you're keeping your worm farm lightly moist, they're really going to thrive. And the final thing that you need to be thinking about with worms is they have a gizzard, kind of like birds do, so they can't consume your scraps without consuming it with grit as well. So you need to add a handful of grit every now and again, and that can be something that you make yourself, something like eggshells that you ground down and sprinkle that in. It can also be something like coarse river sand, and then that will allow the worms to really power through your waste. What's the easiest issues to fix when it comes to worm farms and compost bins? I really wanted my book to just be called Add Carbon, Charlie, okay. instead of so Compost just add carbon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That really, like, it's, you know, I've got this Instagram where I answer lots of people's compost questions and I feel like I'm a bit of a compost agony aunt and, yes. you know, I really enjoy being able to help people with that. But so often, nine times out of ten, it's because they haven't been adding any carbon or maybe enough carbon. Right. Always making sure the surface of your worm farms and compost bins leading into spring and summer have a really generous layer of carbon on top because what can happen is um, things like vinegar flies or blow flies love food waste and if you leave food scraps on the top of these composting systems then those flies will come and lay their larvae. So making sure you always cover it with carbon so that the food waste isn't exposed is a really helpful thing. I also think monitoring the moisture so when things dry out microbial decomposition slows significantly. You definitely don't want it to be like a sopping wet rag right. and you don't want it to be dry either. Do you, so do you know any other weird and wonderful ways to use your compost? 
Charles Dowding, who I feature in my book, who I've totally got a compost crush on, is this uh-huh. really fantastic no-dig gardener in the UK. He um, actually has got his large-scale compost systems, what he does in winter in his greenhouse. He sets one up in the greenhouse and the, the heat that they, that creates actually helps warm the greenhouse. But even more impressively, what he has got is uh, he germinates his seeds. So he has his trays of seeds sitting on top of his compost and the heat from the compost, as opposed to using a heat mat, yes, um, the heat from the compost helps those seeds germinate. So that's a it's a really cool technique to use. I feel like we've only just scratched the surface here. I, I can tell you've got so much knowledge <laughs> in you about compost and, and how passionate you are. How can people connect with you? Uh, how can they get your book? How can they? What's your Instagram handle? All of that stuff. My Instagram handle is compostable.kate because mm-hmm. we are all compostable in the end. Hopefully that's the way I'll go out. Yep. Um, and my my book is called The Compost Coach. I also really recommend people just going and borrowing it from a library. So to keep the circular economy That's not truly a great alive. business decision to say that. <laughs> but do you think there's really that much money to make in compost, Charlie? I'm not here. I'm here for, uh, for educating people. But borrow it from a library. And then if you really love it, maybe you can go and buy your own copy. But um... Or you could buy it and then you can shred it and then you can use it as carbon in your... <laughs> No? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'd love, love chatting to you. Do you mind hanging around for a bit and answering a few community questions? Would that be okay? Yeah, I'd love to. Awesome. That's coming up in a minute. Okay, so we've got some great ones here. The first one is from Hibba in Albury. My kitchen compost bin is always horrendous and has issues with smells. Is there any way to avoid this besides emptying it on a regular basis? Yes. So if you have got one of those fancy compost caddies that have air holes in a charcoal filter think twice about that so you know I feel like there's so much greenwashing and there's so many products that you supposedly need to use but they're really problematic because the holes allow vinegar flies and fruit flies to fly whiz in and out of your mix and you've got this charcoal filter that can't be composted you need to chuck it into landfill every now and again so don't use one of those first and foremost Mm -hmm. just use even something like a um those two litre yogurt tubs with a nice firm fitting lid and something that can fit in your fridge. So coming into the warmer months, if you leave your caddy out the whole time, it is going to smell if you're not emptying it regularly. But if you can keep it out while you're cooking and then you put it into your fridge or even your freezer while it's not in use, that's going to really help with odours. And finally, if you wanted to be particularly organised, you could also have a little container of carbon-rich ingredients. So maybe you've got junk mail and you're ripping that up, adding that into your, your caddy as well so that you can start the balance of those greens and browns. That helps with odour management too. Awesome. Second question is from Pete in Robinvale. It says, hey, Charlie, I have a lot of issues with the heat waves in my country town. As it gets into summer, what's the best way to deal with this in keeping my veggie patch alive? Uh, well, I'm pretty sure you're going to say compost as mulch is the best way to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And maybe thinking about um, in autumn, starting a leaf mould pile because leaf mould used as mulch is really water retentive. But the adding more organic matter into your soil is going to allow it to hold on to, to moisture in really hot periods. Perfect. Next question is from Nathan in Melbourne. He's loving the podcast. Uh, He composts at home, but the compost bin is filling and he keeps adding to it, but it doesn't look like it's breaking down enough to dig into his soil. Shouldn't be digging into the soil, that's what we just learned. (laughs) Do you have any tips for breaking the compost down or should I pause adding to the pile for a couple of weeks? If you've just got one compost bin, 
at a certain point, you are going to have to stop. So if you're always adding organic matter, you're not going to allow the compost time to fully break down and to cure, which is a, a final step in compost making that's important because it allows the compost to be safer to use in your on your soil. So that might be part of it. You, you may need to do that. But I think also chopping ingredients up, increasing the surface area of the your scraps helps them break down, monitoring the moisture. So if it's too dry, decomposition is going to slow. And also adding extra nitrogen-rich inputs as compost activators. So coffee grounds are full of nitrogen. Manure is full of nitrogen. Adding that into the mix can give a real head start to the compost microbes to break down your other organic matter as well. Great. The last question is from Amanda in Sydney, and this is a bit of a different one to all the other questions. She says her neighbour's garden is overgrown. Grass gets up to her knee level, and it's also in the front garden Uh, And it's right next to hers, which is very well maintained and looking delightful. What is the best way to address them? Or should I even offer to help mow it the next time I'm doing hers? Well, yeah, you could mow it. They're obviously not going to do it. Uh, And then that can go in the compost. That would be my advice. Yeah, 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 totally. And I think that, you know, gardening, I, I find, can be such a thing that can bring communities together. And maybe just reaching out and saying, hey, I'm really happy to do it for you next time I'm doing mine yeah. can be, I think that's totally a reasonable thing to do. And, and you know, we, we should be working together with our communities and you might end up making a lovely friendship with your neighbour that's growing that very long grass. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think the funniest thing to see is when you're driving through a neighbourhood and the nature strip if you've got a shared nature strip and someone just stops cutting their grass and then it gets long, it's like, yes. why wouldn't you just do that extra yeah. meter? Like, what's wrong with you? Are you trying to make a point yeah. or something? Yeah. Kate, I have absolutely loved this. I, I really have. I'm a compost fanatic, but you've just got me even more passionate about it. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, I'm really seriously delighted to hear that, Charlie. Thanks for having me. It was really great. Pleasure. On the next episode of That's How We Grow. We had a property that had a 10 square meter block and I used to use a whippersnipper do the whole backyard so I definitely didn't like grass at the start I'll be joined by Ben Sims he's a man who is madly passionate about lawns and even has his own golf green in his backyard so I was flown to the States back in 2019 just to talk about grass I'm Charlie Albone see you next time listener